what is up, you sexy little podcasty bastards? Um, just a quick note from me to say thank you so much for checking out the live streams, um, for subscribing on the YouTube channel, for listening on audio on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this on. Um, just recently this week, tipped 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is fucking great. It's amazing for a podcast that has only been going for a year. Um, I'm endlessly grateful to all of you. Uh, so thanks so much for showing some interest. I, I, I'm guessing that the guests that I've had on or been fortunate enough to get on so far have resonated with some of you. And it's been it's been really cool to see that grow. And uh, and yeah, look, I, I, I don't care what your mother says about you behind your back. I think you're a bloody hero. Um, but yeah, this episode, I, I found this really interesting. Um, it's uh, with a chap called Daniel Whiteson. He's a professor of physics. Um, I basically, I wanted to find somebody who I could just throw those questions at that we all wished that we had like a really smart science friend around our pub table where you could just say to them like, what about time travel? Could we travel through time? How about cryogenics? Can I freeze my brain? Will I ever be able to freeze my brain? How about wormholes? What about warp drives? What about Star Trek and teleporting? Do you think any of that can... Now, I, I probably fried his brain a bit. I probably... He probably came away from our conversation like, who the fuck was that guy? I don't know everything, Aid. Um, but we had a really great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him. He's a very, obviously a very knowledgeable guy, but he's also very passionate and a great communicator. And uh, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed throwing these questions at him. Uh, check it out. It's episode 56, Daniel Whiteson. And we are live on a Friday night at half past five London time. Welcome to episode 56 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. Uh, my guest this week is a professor of physics, co-author of books, frequently asked questions about the universe, and we have no idea. Uh, he's presenter of a TED Talk two years ago running along similar themes uh, about the as yet unanswered questions of the universe. Joining us tonight here in the UK um it's 5 30 but it's his first meeting of the day pacific time 9 30 in the morning over that way it's particle physicist daniel whiteson welcome to the show daniel Woo! <laughs> thanks very much what an amazing introduction thank you uh i mean you know i practiced it a few times earlier it's no big deal um <laughs> could you uh, I, I suppose a good place to start would be to get um sort of an introduction from your side of things how did you come to do what you do daniel what is it <laughs> What is it that I do? That's a good question. Uh, so I am a professor of physics, as you said, at University of California, Irvine, just south of Los Angeles, uh, where it's basically always summer. And I'm a particle physicist. So I teach classes, of course, because I'm a professor at the university. But most of the job is about research. It's about asking questions about the universe. And the questions that I ask are things like, what is the smallest thing? What is everything made out of? How does it all fit together to create this incredibly complex and rich universe that you and I experience? You know, how is it that ice cream is made out of the same bits as lava or hamsters just rearranged? What are the rules for all of that? How did it come to be? All of those questions. And I try to answer them by smashing particles together at super high energies at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And so that's sort of my day job. It's the, the core focus sort of, of my intellectual journey. Yeah. But, you know, these questions are fun and exciting. And not only people with access to $10 billion colliders want to know the answer to them. So I started dabbling in outreach and public writing and speaking. And uh, that's how I ended up where I am today. I see. I see. I mean, there's some really big questions there, aren't there? And it's sort of, I, I guess, from from a layman's perspective like a, a total like entry-level physics student let's say that's that's me at this mm -hmm. stage um there's mm -hmm. this feeling that a lot of it has already been solved uh we have this idea or certainly i do that people like einstein or stephen hawking came along and uh they figured out various weird and wonderful theories and that's it you know we we all know stuff now um <laughs> but it's uh you know it's it's too complicated for me to understand i suppose is is where i'm at with it or there's a sort of consensus that 
it's not solved that the universe is this total mystery but it would take a real bloody clever clogs like daniel whiteson to figure it all out so i'll just go back to my reality tv and twitter you know like so i guess you get you get asked this a lot but you know you, you your book is called we have no idea um mm. could you give us some examples like working examples that we would recognize or would be able to understand of things that we simply do not know physics wise or or more specifically in the universe sure and you know your comment is, is really on point and it was something like 150 years ago that people had a similar feeling it was in the late 1800s people felt like well physics is mostly wrapped up um, you know, we understand how things move and we understand little things and big things and, you know, have ideas about the universe. And of course, most of those ideas are totally wrong um, and they just didn't realize it. But there were a few little things that they didn't have a handle on, a couple of pesky details they needed to sort out. And as they pulled on those pesky details, it turned out they unraveled basically the entire firmament of physics and replaced it with something new, relativity and quantum mechanics. And it turns out that the rules of the tiny little particles were totally different from the rules that baseballs follow and that space and time were completely different from what Newton had imagined. You know, space and time are actually like dynamic, flexible things that change and bend in response to mass. It's crazy. It's bonkers, the kind of things we teach students these days. But the interesting thing about that is that at the time, the clues were small. They thought they had mostly everything figured out, and there were just a couple little things to, to unravel. We're in a different situation today. Today we're in a situation where the clues are huge and screaming and massive and it's obvious to anybody who's studying the field that we have an enormous amount left to learn. So you asked me like what's an example of something we don't yeah. know? Well, you know, some of the biggest questions like how big is the universe? We just don't know uh, how much stuff there is out there. Like if you want to explain what's the universe made out of, first, you know, what is the universe after all? And we can see really far, so we know the universe extends at least 90-something billion light years, but we just don't know what's beyond that. And, and the ideas are crazy. Maybe it goes on forever, like literally forever, as in a beam of light you send out today could travel forever, uh, you know, never stopping. Is, there is no end to time. This is the thing. Or like it could... Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say it's so mind blowing. Yeah. Like this is this is exactly it. Like where it challenges the uh, the bounds of your of, of anyone's intelligence. Where you could say, well, how big is the universe? And you say, like, I mean, it, like you just said a, a second ago, it could go on forever. But in our sort of you know primitive <laughs> human brain, we're like, well, <laughs> nothing goes on forever i mean say for a few unfortunate podcast episodes but you know um <laughs> they the, the idea that this this space could expand forever and it's just like no something has to be beyond it but then you get into i suppose this sort of half philosophical thing where it's like mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. you know could it go on forever what could go be you know right right and it's really fascinating to hear people contrast the scientific ideas with what they feel is natural or would make sense. And what would make sense has really changed over time. Like you say, it's crazy to think that the universe could go on forever. You know, in a similar way, you might think it's crazy to imagine the universe has existed forever. Mm -hmm. Well, a hundred or so years ago, people thought it was obvious that the universe had existed forever. Um, you know, the stars just hung up in the sky and nothing was changing. Why would anything ever change? Why should anything have ever changed? Obviously, it's been like this forever. And then when we discover that, no, there are other galaxies out there and they're expanding and it turns out the universe seems to have had some sort of beginning 13 billion years ago. Now it seems clearly natural for people to think oh no the universe obviously has to have a beginning so like what feels natural to you what feels like a reasonable explanation changes over time and that's really the value of science right it's this incredible uh you know method to systematically build knowledge despite your intuition despite your like philosophical leanings about how the universe should be the universe just is the way it is it doesn't give a dang about you know uh, our ideas about philosophy um, but you make a great point that it would be weird for the universe to go on forever because we don't really have any examples of infinity. Like there's nothing in our lives we can point to to say, here, infinity exists in nature. We don't know if it's just something in our minds, this idea of infinity, or if there really are things out there that are infinite like the universe. 
And it could also be that the universe is not infinite. And that might be more mind-blowing. Like, what if the universe has an edge? Like, how strange would that be? Or if the universe loops, like wraps around itself? Uh, I love these questions because no matter what the truth is, every answer blows your mind. And so it's sort of like yeah. guaranteed intellectual joy. Yeah, it's like... I mean, there's a certain type of person in my experience that, that goes into science and or technology. Um, and it's that sort of problem, so that thirst for problem solving and the excitement that you mm -hmm. get behind it where, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you're presented with a problem and you think, oh, this is great. It's like when you, if I, like I do web development and if I get stuck on something, I'm like, cool, <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to learn something. This is great. Here's a puzzle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's something that I only, I only sort of developed that attitude after I got into tech. Like before that, anytime I got stuck in life or love or, or anything, I'd be like, oh, this really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you really put your finger on something. If you want to be a scientist, you have to really enjoy those puzzles. You have to find this to be fun. And, you know, it's very personal. Like for me, mostly doing science is writing computer programs to analyze data and not building things. Other people, you know, that crawl around detectors with screwdrivers and get sweaty and greasy and they love that stuff. To me, that kind of stuff is endlessly frustrating. And if I have a like a hardware, a physical problem to solve, I'm like, ugh, can't we just move on to the interesting bits? Where for other people, you know, that is the interesting bits. And so it's cool because science is made up of all different kinds of people, each one of which finds their bit to be the most fascinating, mm. the most essential, the crucial element, and everything else is just details or engineering or something. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a really fun collection of people to work with. It sounds very similar in terms of there being a sort of overlap uh, with, with the people that I've encountered in tech uh, with what you're describing in the sense that like my, my layman understanding, my read of science and scientists is that ultimately it is a quest for truth. You're looking mm -hmm. for clues mm -hmm. and you're looking for ways to solve problems that are going to allow you to arrive at a conclusion where your peers and your friends and and whoever you work with say yeah i i get that that makes sense and they test it and the test comes back like yes it supports it okay great you know you get to that point where you're like well this at the moment with the information that we have at hand right now this appears to be true mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and with with tech on a in a perhaps a diluted example um i found that again like when you when you're working with engineers all day it's never about ego it's about getting to the right solution and you know if somebody bats your idea back then it's like oh okay cool well you know let's try your idea because it's it that solves the problem in a more mm -hmm. optimized or efficient mm -hmm. manner um but it sort of leads me on to a question i was i was thinking about tabling a, a little bit later on in the uh in the podcast but given that you work in science and science as i've said is a sort of fundamental quest for truth um and and there is this sort of absence of ego uh, or at least there appears to be um do, <laughs> yeah, you, <I'm> sure. <laughs> do you ever come across like but you don't have to name names i mean you can name names but um do you ever come across people where the ego gets in the way you know they're like oh daniel's come out with a theory about this but it's oh complete bollocks and then you you're like well what's this guy's attitude you know is there is there beef in the science community oh yeah oh absolutely you know science is by the people and of the people it's just a bunch of people and so of course there are politics because it's a human endeavor and there are massive egos i mean when you are working on things that like seem fundamental and universal and the fund and the basic nature of the universe um there are huge egos you know i mean people win nobel prizes uh for this kind of work and so when you're sort of within you know a stone's throw of winning a nobel prize and you might win it or somebody else might win it um there are definitely big egos uh, involved and lots of conflict um, you know, there are professional careers and there's advancement and uh, there's a competition for scarce resources. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, but the good news is science is a big community. And mm. so there are plenty of wonderful people to work with. And the key is, like with everything else, to find your group, to find the people who are generous with their ideas and um, like to brainstorm and with whom you can have like a good, fun, scientific cross-mogenation that you want to be on this journey with. And so I've certainly had some, my share of experiences, 
you know, talking with people and then finding them taking my ideas and presenting them as their own, um, oh, you know, cutting me out of Fuck projects that. and all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But, you know, in the end, uh, we're all people and this is a job and uh, it's supposed to be fun. And so I, I tend to just like once somebody treats me that way, they're just on my blacklist and then I just don't work with them again. And I have the freedom to get to basically work with whoever I want. So uh, we do get to have a lot of fun. That's cool. Um, and there is this sense that, you know, we are looking for truth and, and there's this eagerness, you know, to unravel the mystery. Like something that tickles me about science is that there is a truth that's out there. There is like a true story about the universe. Mm. You know, like the universe began in one way and no other way. There's no like 19 different versions of the history of the universe. And I think that eventually we will figure it out. So like humans in a thousand years, they will know answers to questions that we're puzzling over. How did the universe begin? How big is it? They could actually know these things, right? And yeah. <clears throat> I find it really fascinating to think about what it would like to, what would, it would be like to be human and have these answers. And to sort of mentally practice that, you can toss your mind back and think about what it was like to be human before we knew things that we do know now, like that the universe is billions of years old, the earth is billions of years old. That's relatively new knowledge. And lots of our great ancestors didn't know that. Yeah. And so basically they were living in an environment they thought was totally different from reality. And so we could be in that same situation where there are still truths out there about the universe that really changed the fundamental you know, meaning of what it is to be human because it changes our context. So that to me is exciting that science is like going to gradually reveal those things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you find though that, um, cause I, I had a, a conversation with a guy, I was, uh, sort of lobbying to retrain him. He was stuck in a kind of warehouse logistics job and, um, he was complaining that he didn't have an awful lot of time with his kids and so on. And I said, well, you know, I could give you some tutorials and, uh, you could learn to code and, um, and I think he was scared a little bit of delving into that world because in his mind, uh, the idea that he could make the shift from quite a manual job into a technical job, in his mind, like coding is you have to understand the entirety of the matrix and uh, every <laughs> facet of software engineering, you would have to understand that completely. And, and that seems like a, you know, a gigantic mm -hmm. task. Um, and I was sort of trying to explain to him that with with coding, it's kind of you actually kind of it's like historical software engineers pass the baton to the next generation of software engineers and then the next generation of software engineers don't actually really necessarily need to know level minus one level minus two level minus three <laughs> they kind of get on at the mezzanine floor and then you know carry on the development right, right. and i wondered like is it similar to that with science where you know at the moment we we project forward into like a hundred years time or a thousand years time and we think wouldn't it be amazing to know all this stuff that we don't know right now as though they would be almost like gods these people because they would have figured it out but <laughs> yeah but is yeah. it kind of a little bit like you'll pass the baton to like let's say your son who will then pass the baton to your grandson and they won't necessarily know the nooks and the crannies the nuts and the bolts that we know about our technology and our situation now but they will have gained a greater understanding yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of the details of what we think now that, you know, will just not survive because it's it's wrong. Um, and, and I think it's also interesting that the sort of the level of knowledge, the people who are experts or understand the universe seems to be getting younger and younger as time goes on. You know, like 100 years ago, people who understood quantum mechanics and relativity, these were physicists in their 50s who were working at the edge of the field and, and nobody else. Uh, these days we teach it to undergraduates. You know, and um, eventually, and I've even seen books like Quantum Mechanics for Babies, you know, and I think that in a thousand years or in 500 years, there will be kindergarten books uh, that have incredible facts about the universe that you and I don't know and would blow our minds. And, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that far into the future what humans would be like, not biologically, but mentally. You know, what questions are they asking? What are they wondering about? It might be that a kindergarten book in 500 years is too high a level for us, that we wouldn't even understand the questions they're asking because just like the nature of what it is to be human in that world could be so different 
from the way it is today. I think we're often like ensconced really deeply in, in our world and imagine that humanity's always been this way. But, you know, I think people thought about the world very, very differently 500 years ago. And in 500 years, that transformation will be much greater because of the speed at which things are changing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think that the next generation sort of boosts off of where we are and, and moves forward um, without learning all the nuts and can bolts. You, can you imagine the mental breakdown that somebody would have if they were projected from like the 1500s in England into like 2022. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, or take the smartest person in 1500, like take Galileo, take Da Vinci, show him your laptop. Like, I mean, that, yeah. this person wouldn't even understand what it is they are seeing, not to mention be able to ask questions like, how do you build a chip that goes into yeah. a laptop and keep it cool? Like, why is right? it, they, they wouldn't even understand Why is it. it glowing? Like, where does that light come from? Is this some <laughs> sort of, like, holy artifact? Where did you, like... Yeah. Um, That's the kind of thing that makes me wonder what it would be like to meet aliens. You know, sometimes we think about, oh, it'd be cool to meet aliens. They could share with us their technology. But I'm thinking about Galileo and the laptop. Like, it'd be useless. Like, you could leave Galileo alone with that laptop for 100 years. He would not make any progress. He would not understand anything about what's yeah. going on. Um, and I just think it, it's probably hopeless if the aliens come. They wouldn't even know how to explain. You know, get get past all the questions of like how to have a language together and how to communicate. Even if we got past all of that and it was like physicist to physicist, I think there might be too big a gulf for us to even talk about, you know, uh, deep questions about the universe. It'd be kind of fun, though, wouldn't it? It would be like... <laughs> they would be like look we got this thing it lets us time travel it lets us teleport and we would just be like uh we've just got netflix <laughs> uh, yeah maybe right maybe they would be super advanced maybe they would have asked totally different questions and so we might be advanced in ways they hadn't even imagined you know it's it's fascinating to me and that's that's also sort of agonizing like talk about how there are answers out there and the, the universe has truths that we will uncover it's also frustratingly slow like yeah. to know that the universe will, will the, those answers will be revealed in 500 years or aliens have already learned these answers and they know them and they're like a few light years away to know the answers are out there and we don't have them is so intensely frustrating you know it's like um you don't get to see the last episode of your show because uh, you know it's not available yet but you're just desperate <laughs> to know what happens to your characters right yeah oh it's so frustrating yeah or, or it's kind of like you know your friend says to you like oh my god i've got the best gossip ever and you go like oh shit yeah. like, what's, what's and then they go wait, wait, wait i'll call you right back <laughs> exactly exactly what is it Sometimes I want to like freeze my brain and come back in a thousand years just to get a, you know, a glimpse of what humanity has learned. But as I said, probably in a thousand years, I'll be totally clueless. It'd be impossible for me to, I'd need to like stop every 25 years or so and get caught up, yeah. um, get refrozen. That's good, good moment really to, uh, to go on a bit of a juncture in terms of some of the like science fiction stuff. So um, mm -hmm. one of the things that, mm -hmm. that drew me to your like your online profile and your TED talk and stuff was I, I read one of your pieces in uh, Wired magazine about teleporting. Um, and mm. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. So um, and then maybe we could talk about like cryogenics and time sure. travel and shit yeah. in a second. Um, so so let's start with teleporting. Um, can is it possible to teleport? Do you ever foresee a time when it might be possible? Uh, I think the answer is yes, but it depends, unfortunately, on what you mean by teleport. So if by teleport you mean your atoms, the things that are actually making you up, disappears and reappears somewhere else instantaneously, that's just not possible. Right. Uh, and the reason is that we know there's a speed at which information travels through the universe. You know, like things can't move faster than the speed of light. There is no way to get information from here to Alpha Centauri faster than the speed of light. You know, unless you want to do like wormholes and warp drives, and we could put that on hold for a second. But actually teleporting, like, you know, disappearing and reappearing somewhere else instantaneously, definitely not possible. Unless you're willing to go at the speed of light. If you're willing to go at the speed of light, then potentially that could actually be done. So are we sort of, is, is it, the common consensus then in the scientific community that uh you couldn't go faster than the speed of light and like where you mentioned about warp drives a minute ago 
because I was like I was a bit of a geek coming up me and my brother used to watch Star Trek together and the idea that you could go like you know warp three or warp five and warp nine and um is that just a bit far-fetched or no it's it depends a little bit again on what you mean so like there's a loophole there that we should we can exploit the the universe says you can't move faster than the speed of light like nothing can ever um, and that's fine, but sometimes you you have to sort of think about the question you're asking, like, do you really want to move through all the space between here and the next star? Is that really your goal? Or do you just want to get there? Because if you just want to get there, then you can get there faster than light can get there by going through space because space itself is flexible. Space itself can bend and twist. And so if, for example, you could compress the space between here and there, then you don't need to break the speed limit in order to get there faster than light otherwise would have then, so if you want to so if you want to get to like a star that's 10 light years away light would take 10 years to get there but if you could compress the space between here and there so it's effectively a few centimeters then boom you can get there in a few microseconds how would you compress space yeah how would you compress space great follow-up <laughs> question from an engineer you're like okay let's get to work step one <laughs> how, how do we space. do this yeah <laughs> Well, you know, the thing to understand is that space is not like uh, an abstract backdrop to the universe. It's not just like the stage on which things happen. Most people, when you think about empty space, they think about, you know, vast blackness or they think about like a coordinate system, you know, like X, Y and Z out there. Um, and that, you know, when you pull particles out of everything that you have just nothingness. But that's not what space is. Einstein tells us that space is a thing. It's dynamical. That means that it can change. And space can, for example, bend. What is gravity? It turns out gravity is actually not a force. It's the bending of space when you put a mass in it. So the Earth goes around the sun not because there's some like Newtonian tug of gravity pulling on the Earth, but because the sun bends space in such a way that it's more natural for the Earth to move in a circle. You know, the way, for example, um, uh, those pennies, sometimes in museums you see these like funnels you can put a penny in and it'll spin around for a long time before it finally drops in. Uh, that penny is moving on a curved surface, and so its path is not to just move straight, but to move in a curve. The same way the Earth moves around the sun. So space is a thing which can bend and twist and ripple and expand you can do all sorts of things in response to mass which means you can do things like compress it or expand it that is like you know when i was saying at the beginning of the podcast about like how you know a layman like me would kind of struggle to get his like it's just blowing my mind i'm like the, the way yeah. so as you're describing it very eloquently i like the way it's landing in my head because i tend to think visually um is that where you say, okay, space is not this sort of big backdrop. It's more, it, it is a thing or it could be a thing. Um, I imagine then, so is it like a sort of a f invisible fabric that we can't see or? It absolutely is. It's like a fabric. It's dynamical. It's sort of like we are fish scientists. We've been swimming through this thing. Uh, thinking that it's nothing and then discover oh it actually is a thing and it has properties it can change right. it can it can move it can bend it can be connected in weird ways um, a mistake a conceptual mistake or sort of a mental picture mistake is to think about space as a fabric inside some other space so it's not like space is this thing which moves and bends relative to some true space or some meta space yeah. You know, this bending of space is not external. It's not like, you know, there's a the common idea of like a bowling ball and a rubber sheet that shows you how like space could bend in response to a yeah. mass. That's helpful, but it's also misleading because it makes you think that space is bending like in some third external dimension. Instead, the way to think about it mentally is that the bending is intrinsic. What's happening when space bends or twists or expands is you're just changing the relative distances between things. So there's a bit of space here and a bit of space there. When you bend space, you're not like moving these things relative to some external universal ruler. What you're doing is saying, okay, the distance between these two points is now greater or is now smaller. So it's this internal relative distances that's changing when you bend or twist space. And what what could that manifest as product-wise? I'm putting, <laughs> putting my software engineer cap back on. So like, I mean, all of this sounds mind-blowing because it is. But what do you think, let's let's 
push ourselves forward, you know, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. do you think the possibilities are for human beings with our understanding of space in that respect? Does it mean that we could, we, like, because, you know, we've all seen the science fiction movies where they sort of, you know, they pinch space together. And uh, I think yeah. there's a scene in yeah. Event Horizon where he, he puts the bit, two ends of paper together and then punches a hole through it with a pencil. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, this is a wormhole. And you could. So mm -hmm. is it something along those lines that potentially at some point in yeah. the future we could compress space and use that as a way to not teleport but jump through space quickly or yeah that's the kind of thing that exists in science fiction movies and people look at it and think probably physicists think that's bonkers um but it turns out no that's actually pretty realistic really? so those kinds of things are you know not in the next 10 years, maybe not in the 50, next 50 years, maybe in the next 100 years, but they are not out, out of the realm of possibility. So one thing you talked about is a warp drive, and you know one way a warp drive might work is exactly as we said, you compress the space in front of you and expand the space behind you, right? And so you're like in sort of a warp bubble. You, the distance between you and where you need to go gets shorter, and the distance between where you are and where you came from gets larger. And you ask me, how do you do that? Well, how do you compress space, right? You don't just like say some magic incantation. We know something about compressing space. Uh, we know something about bending space. Um, that's mass. So for example, you're bending space. Like your existence in the universe bends and compresses the space around you. It changes the way things flow very minutely because you're not that massive um you know the sun bends space a lot more uh, black holes bend space an enormous amount so we do know something about compressing space now compressing the space between here and alpha centauri uh so that it, you could get there in an afternoon rather than in a thousand well, years I mean, that... we can start with just here to bahamas would be great i mean <laughs> I'm glad that you're so realistic about these things. You know? um, yeah, so we're talking about just right now, we're talking about incredible amounts of energy, things that, you know, humans would never have access to. We're talking about the kinds of energy stored in all of the mass of a giant planet, mm. you know, uh, billions of times more energy than anything we've imagined. But, you know, that's sort of an engineering problem. Like, Physicists say, all right, theoretically, if you had a ridiculous amount of energy, this thing could be done. Now the engineer's like, all right, let's see if we can knock it down a factor of 10, make it more efficient. Or uh, if we have a develop a focusing device or a lens or something, you know, a, a resonant cavity, I don't know. It's the, it's the province of engineers. And so eventually, you know, you'll have a uber warp and you can just press a button on your phone and uh, warp to the Bahamas. I like, um, but I, like, I think it's exciting that it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this idea that physicists sort of theorize and think yeah this, you know this could work and then they bat it to the engineers like now you motherfuckers are going to build it <laughs> i should have been a physicist this whole time um yeah exactly so, and, and so that's the kind of thing that you know really could happen and, and the other thing you mentioned wormholes that's not something we've seen in the universe but again the physics says it could be possible and, and the thing the way to understand that is that you know, we think about space as sort of like um, a big grid. Uh, my bit of space is connected to the bits of space that are around me, right? Well, how do I get from here to the next bit of space? I somehow like slide over from this one to the next one. And you know, if you think about space as like a bunch of points connected in a mesh, then you're just drawing lines between the neighboring mesh points. It's like a, a grid of graph paper. Each one is connected only to the ones near it. Turns out space is more complicated than that. It can have non-trivial connections. You can have bits of space connected to bits of space that are otherwise far away. So what I said earlier is that you should think about space and distances in terms of like relative distances between points. You could just say, all right, this point now is very close to that point, which is otherwise, you know, many grid points away, but I'm just gonna make a line from here to there. Now these two things are near each other, which means you can go from one to the other. That's a wormhole. And theoretically possible, but actually nobody knows how to build one. I thought, I could have sworn I saw a news story a couple of years ago, where didn't they take a photograph of what they thought was a wormhole? Or am I imagining that? <laughs> I wish. No, they took a photograph of a black hole. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Fine. Yeah, it looks sort of like a, a big Krispy Kreme donut That's or something. That's right. I remember. 
um let's move on from teleporting and and warp drives um you mentioned like cryogenically sort of freezing your brain i think i read somewhere again i read a lot of trash daniel um but i read somewhere that walt disney had frozen his brain um that may or may not be true i don't know i don't fact check everything that comes out of my mouth um but could could cryogenics could that work could it yeah, so cryogenics, you know, it potentially in theory, maybe it could work. The challenge there is that when you freeze biological cells, they're mostly water. And, you know, what happens when you freeze water is that it expands. Like you put uh, a soda in the freezer, it's going to explode. Water is that weird kind of thing that gets bigger when it freezes. Most things don't. Most things, when you freeze them, they get smaller, they shrink. So if you have your cells, which are little bags of water, and you freeze them, then what's going to happen is they're going to explode, <laughs> each one of them, like such that a, like that Such soda. a bummer yeah. if in, like, you know, 100 years' time they've <laughs> figured out cryogenics and then your ancestors go to the freezer that you're kept in. They're like, yeah, let's get Walt out. And they look, and because they froze it and expanded, his whole fucking head's like... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And so then the problem is like not so much freezing, but the thawing and restarting uh, is kind of a problem. And, you know, that's essential. If you want to get frozen, you definitely want to get restarted at some point. Um, So, you know, people work on diluting that water with some kind of glycerin so that um, it doesn't have the same properties. And when you freeze it, maybe it doesn't expand. And they've actually succeeded in doing this for things like frogs and small animals. They freeze them and they can bring them back and they are hopping around. Really? Um, you know ramp yeah and ramping that up to human bodies is going to be a real challenge because we have different biology than frogs uh but in theory you know potentially it's possible um i would not get frozen today like we definitely do not have the technology to safely get frozen um today and so i would not put my uh, my brain on ice i mean if you're going to die anyway perhaps you know take scoop it out in the last five minutes but if you're just looking to fast forward to the future i would not recommend uh getting yourself frozen today with our current technology what about what about just hardcore time travel like i'm i'm an 80s and 90s kid i grew up on back to the future movies how close are we (laughs) to a flux capacitor we are nowhere close (laughs) and not in the dream shattered yeah let me just break that dream for you because it's not even just oh, we think it might work, but the engineers have a big puzzle, you know, like with wormholes and warp drives. We think theoretically it just fundamentally doesn't make sense. Time travel is like a fiction. It's a, it's sort of a nonsense. And, it, you know, you can get a clue about that because it doesn't even really make sense in fiction. Like most of the time travel stories you read, they got big plot holes in them. You know, like Back to the Future, um, Marty is in the past and he's affecting the future and he's like, He's, he's got this photograph of himself, which is like very slowly fading away. And he's got to fix the future before he fades. Like, what is going on there? It makes no sense <laughs> at all. You know, the past is slowly affecting the future. It, it makes no sense at all. Um, and so these these stories are fun. And in those stories, often people are doing things like thinking of different places in time as different physical locations. Say the story, the writer is sort of like imagining the past is here and the future is there and you could move between them like they're locations, but they're just not, you know, there's a connection between the past and the future. It's causal. This is a flow, right? Think about time as like a bunch of snapshots of the universe. One happens and the next one, and the next one, they, one causes the other. So you can't have the future affecting the past. It just doesn't make any sense, you know, for there to be that kind of loop. So fundamentally, time travel, I think, is pretty much off the table. On the other hand, there's always an asterisk because physics never really understands everything. And, you know, our ideas about the universe could be totally overthrown by some smart young person uh, discovering the way things actually work. But with our current understanding, I just don't see a possibility at all. I would not invest in a time travel company. Mm. Does it, um, I mean, are there time, I was almost going to skip past that there. Are there time travel startups? <laughs> I bet there are. I might Google it in a minute. Um, does it Does it bother you when you've got, so you've got like sci-fi writers and sci-fi comic book fans and stuff. And, um, uh, and then I suppose outside of the realm of 
uh, of actual fiction occasionally you get a really big science story like you mentioned the hadron collider earlier um when when something big like that enters the media arena does it bother you when you've got these sort of you know opinionista journalists who try and get in on it and they start saying stuff like oh, don't we better not turn this on or it might tear a hole in the space-time continuum and like are you like <laughs> oh god you know some people think uh any publicity is good publicity even you know even negative publicity um i'm not sure i feel that way i feel like it's so vital these days that people have uh, trust in their news sources that you have to be really careful that you know what you're saying um, and I see a lot of clickbait out there you know sensationalization of, of science and I think it leads to people feeling sort of tired like you see a dramatic news headline oh my gosh scientists have discovered XYZ and then three months later you discover you see another one that says the opposite thing and then you're like huh what you don't have the expertise to really unravel it. So then you just start to feel like, well, I'm just going to not really listen when the scientists say they've discovered X, Y, Z. And the problem is usually with the journalists, unfortunately. The scientists have been very careful in their claims. And then the journalists have like hyped it up because they want to get clickbait uh, on their articles. So that is frustrating to me. Um, but, but I also understand like I'm glad that people are excited about it, that people want to hear about the space-time continuum and the future of the universe. I want people to be have access to that because people are curious. You know, these questions about the nature of the universe, um, you know, IT guys and, uh, and delivery truck drivers and elementary school teachers, everybody wants to know the answer to these questions. So what I'm doing in my outreach and our, our podcast and our books is to try to convey all this stuff and be as accurate as possible, but still make it accessible so that anybody out there who doesn't have a scientific degree could still feel like, you know, they get a sense of what the story is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that you do very well, um, like from what, what I've read and, I, and your TED talk, um, I think you've got quite a unique ability to, and I suppose I'm, I'm dipping my toe into the realm of cliche to some extent here but the the cliche is that people who work in physics or you know science more broadly um that they're all in white coats and they all look like you know all got german <laughs> accents like einstein and uh uh but i think you have an ability to communicate um your passion and the unanswered questions within that realm uh, to people in a way that is accessible and kind of funny as well um so i think that's that's a really good thing and and hopefully if you can if journalists can kind of step outside of the arena of uh, clickbait then hopefully that will be the thing that kind of engages people you know yeah i hope so it's nice of you to say you know i'm just trying to share my my joy of it um i find you know when i'm on an airplane for example back in the day when we back in the days when we sat on airplanes and talked to strangers when people would ask me what i do and i say i'm a physicist the first they would say, ugh, I hate physics or I hated physics in high school yeah. or whatever. Physics is terrible. And, and then I'd say, yeah, well, I'm just trying to understand what the universe is made out of. And then they go, really? Hmm, what is the universe mm -hmm. made of? Hmm, turns out uh, everybody is curious about these things. And uh, there's unfortunately sometimes a divide between you know, the scientific community and the general public. And I, I don't think that has to be there. I think that there's a lot of what we do is really accessible and really fascinating. And and we've had these incredible moments where we've learned something about the universe, where we really have like peeled back a layer of reality and seen deeper into the universe. Like, uh, you know, it's sort of like Plato's cave. And we've discovered that the this world that's around us that we think is made of you know, objects that move smoothly like balls and, 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 and wheels, it turns out it's a bit of an illusion. It's, you know, it's not the way the, you, the universe works at the lower level. And to me, that's, it's like a revelation. It's not like a religious thing. It's not even really a spiritual thing. It's, um, it's an intellectual thing where we're diving deep into the firmament of reality and, and, and understanding how it really is. And to me, that's like a drug you know, to know that truth is out there and mm. that we have the tools, we could actually pull it back. And I uh, just want to share that with everybody because science uh, belongs to everybody. Yeah. And it's 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 something I think when you're passionate about something, uh, people kind of it, it almost is insignificant, the subject that you're passionate about. People <laughs> drink that shit in. So like if you're speaking on the stage and you got a mic and you're, you're like your passion, your enthusiasm and the buzz that you get from it comes off well 
people will be like, let's listen to what this guy has to say, you know? Um, <laughs> I, That's right. Even if it's about, you know, like um, miniature, uh, you know, miniature kitchens or something, it is exciting to hear about people who are excited about yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, not that miniature kitchens aren't outrageously uh, interesting. <laughs> um, that was originally what this podcast was going to be about, actually. But um, <laughs> if you if you weren't a scientist, what do you think you would have been? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Uh, I was originally interested in writing uh, when I was younger. I very much wanted to be um, a writer, fiction, um, science fiction. I you thought know, that was super weirdly, cool and really That fun. doesn't surprise me because I was like, when I was watching your TED talk, there was a joke in there about, um, I forget the exact part about it, but it was about, I think, how the universe is made. No, it was about particles, breaking down particles. And you said, you know, there's mm -hmm. this rock and then we break it down. It's this rock and then there's all kinds of rocks. And then you put like a picture of the rock up up there <laughs> and it landed pretty well um and i thought like he's like i didn't necessarily immediately get like stand-up comedian vibes although you know it was funny uh but i did think like you know he's he's got a good feel for like language and now you mentioned writing it's um i could see you doing something like that oh well that's nice of you um it's a lot of fun to create a new world you know science is fun because you're investigating a true world there's a real answer out yeah. there but it's also fun to, to think about imaginary worlds. What would it be like to live in a universe where the rules were different? What would it be like to live in that universe? I think those are really fun questions. And on our podcast, sometimes we do a deep dive into the physics of uh, fictional universes. So we find an author who's written a science fiction novel and ask them all sorts of questions about like, um, why is it you can travel faster than light? And how does warp drive work in your universe and grill them on the science of it, um, which is a lot of fun. Um, but I really I have a huge respect for people who can create an entire universe and stick to the rules, you know, come up with rules, really make their car characters be bound by them. The, the conflicts and the struggles of those characters really defined by the nature of the rules in that universe. I think that's super fascinating. I have deep, deep respect for that. Do you think there's a risk that because I, I suppose this is my fear, uh, and it's somewhat nihilistic, but I fear that we will continue to make these groundbreaking discoveries, right? Your work at the, the Hadron Collider, something will come out of there and it will be, it will shatter the paradigm that we've all grown up in and, and we'll have this completely like shifted understanding of what the universe is and how we fit into it and all that stuff. And just as we figure mm -hmm. that out, and expose ourselves to the possibilities of what that might mean for humanity climate change will come along and fuck everything and then <laughs> we're just, like that's my fear is that we're sort of we're just at the precipice of gaining a greater understanding of the universe uh and it's just at the same time as everything could potentially upend um do you like how much faith do you have in the world at the moment that we're actually going to sort of survive in the next i mean like you you, you mentioned earlier about you know 100 years or 500 years or a thousand years they'll have a greater understanding and we'll you know they'll look back at us like oh, you know they didn't understand any of this shit what like do you have faith that we'll still be here in like 300 years oh i wish i could say i did you know uh, every great civilization before us collapsed right which is why we're here and so we m would like to imagine that our civilization will survive a thousand years ten thousand years a million years but the odds are i don't know not great it feels like forever that we've been on the edge of collapse we've been like you know staggering forward almost tripping over ourselves for the last hundred years ever since essentially we invented nuclear weapons i feel like we've been on the edge of potentially <clears throat> obliterating ourselves our civilization um and it's amazing to me that we haven't so far so yeah i feel that tension this race to like learn as much as we can about the universe and develop tools to save ourselves uh, before we use those very same tools to destroy ourselves. Um, I think it's something about the nature of, of being human. You know, you create this technology, it gets out there into the universe. Uh, it will be abused, not just in terms of weapons, but as you say, for climate change, it's like slow, inexorable selfishness. It's just going to sort of like, you know, lead us all to roll together off of this cliff into disaster. It's uh, it's frustrating to watch, but it's sort of the nature of being human. You sound um, you, so. I, I'm not ta I'm not that optimistic, unfortunately. I'd like to lie and say that I'm optimistic, but <laughs> I think history tells us that all great civilizations fall uh, trip over themselves eventually. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm quite crestfallen by your response there. I was looking for some uh, some optimism. <laughs> um, I had a guest on um, last week, a psychologist, and uh, he was talking about how um, some psychologists had worked on some sort of ethically, morally questionable stuff, um, and they were con- they were still working today. And uh, although I don't think they were working on anything particularly high profile, but um, and I, I forget the example that he <clears throat> that he mentioned now, but it sounded like how could you, as a medical professional, get involved in something that was that ethically shaky? Um, and you just mentioned nukes a minute ago. Uh, do you like where how how would a professor of physics square the invention of something like nuclear bombs because like having grown up in the 80s and 90s we sort of assume that these things have just always existed you know they, something happened in the 60s and the 70s and there was a, you know there was a big like fear thing about cuba and kennedy and um but as far as my generation are concerned, they've always been there and we've always been sort of ish kind of in fear of them, but mutually assured destruction kind of keeps everything at bay. Um, but I, I wonder like what kind of a person could work on technology like that as a physicist or or, or anyone where, where the goal would be, how can we fucking fry like 30 million people at once? Like, does that, have you, have you engaged with any of, that kind of person within the science realm or am i just moralizing am i on my high horse about it no no absolutely Um, i actually grew up in los alamos new mexico los alamos is where the atomic bomb was developed by exactly those physicists you're talking about oh shit um and so it's a small town in northern new mexico it used to be a secret town and so the manhattan project in the 40s is where you know Einstein and Fermi and all these guys got together to to give the U.S. the bomb before the Germans got it, um, and it's a fascinating place because there the development of this technology is um, is really it's propagandized. You know, you're told that this is the place that won the war, and uh, we used our brains and we did it. And <clears throat> I remember, like in seventh grade. It was the first time anybody ever asked me, like, do you think it was a mis- uh, the right thing to do to bomb Japan? And if, I, my first thought was, of course it was right. Like, we developed this bomb. We were at war. Like, da 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 And it took years before I started to really engage with the question of, like, hmm, we killed a lot of women and civilians. And, and that's basically, in other terms, you might call that terrorism. And that now we have weapons of mass destruction pointed at cities, right? Mm. We have nuclear bombs now pointed at large civilian populations, and we use them to uh, achieve political ends. Other worlds, other other uh, people might call that terrorism. Uh, so I thought about it quite deeply uh, because both of my parents work at the National Lab, or used to, um, and so my childhood uh, was funded essentially by that kind of work. Um, you know, I don't know the details of what they worked on because it was behind the fence and all secret and. Um, I've asked them about how they felt about that kind of work, you know, and um, without speaking too much about their those private conversations, I think the general sense is that there's a feeling of like you have to do what you can to protect your country and that, uh, you know, these things are being developed elsewhere and sort of sort of a race to to you ensure that these weapons aren't being pointed at us more than that they can be pointed at others. But I very explicitly decided to go into particle physics because I hoped there were no potential weapons applications. Yeah. You know, I don't think that anything I learn about the universe is going to let somebody kill somebody else more efficiently or more rapidly. But you never know. You know, you could reveal some new force about the universe, which could rapidly get turned into a ray gun or something. You never really do know and you never have control. But I wanted to find a field that was a little bit more separate from immediately weaponizable technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, that does feel icky to me, absolutely. Um, I'm funded by the government, but I don't want to give the government new capabilities to, you know, roast children and women in other countries. Uh, I absolutely have no interest in developing that kind of technology. So it's quite sticky, uh, and there's lots of different angles there. And I think it's it's quite difficult for people who work in that field, I think, to sort of square that with their humanity. Mm. Yeah, and it's like I, I I don't want to moralize too much on it because everyone's situation is different, and 
you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of, let's say, um, a, a physics professor who's just been let go from his job in research at, I don't know, IBM or, you know, some, some mm-hmm. big farmer mm-hmm. or so, I, I don't know who employs physics professors, but let's say it's mm-hmm. one of those. Um, and you've got three kids and a wife and, you know, the only other employer in that town is the government. And they say, well, we want a physics guy to come in and help us build this fucking death ray. Um, you know, you might have to square that. You might have to think, well, I know you don't want to move back to your mum's in Iowa or whatever. Like, I know you want to stay here and the kids are all in school here. Like, there are mitigating scenarios that you have to kind of factor in. And it's to be fair, it's not fair for me to sort of sit here and go like, you know, what's what's wrong with these guys? Um, but yeah, I was... Well, what you, dis- what you described is, you know, oddly accurate because, you know, there's a lot of money for research that's related to defense you know the the scale of the budget for basic research like the national science foundation here in the united Mm -hmm. states is you know a couple billion a few billion every year whereas the scale of defense is hundreds and hundreds of billions every year so when it comes to doing research if you want money to answer like deep fundamental questions about the universe you 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 know compete for scraps if you're interested in developing the next death ray <clears throat> they are shoveling money at you and so it's a real question and when you're funding I, I know people whose funding for their sort of basic research has dried up and then they've had to go to work on you know they call the programmatic topics mm. you know um weapons re- weapons development or weapons maintenance you know understanding how well do our 1960s nuclear weapons work if we drop one on a city will it still explode how does the plutonium degrade it and the casing around it? and there's a lot of money for doing that kind of research so it's a difficult question you're right for individuals to make like you got to provide for your family um, everybody's part of the same big machine um so it's it's a tricky question for a lot and, of people and- I suppose from America's perspective and perhaps to a lesser extent uh, the UK or, or the EU um, it's not necessarily as clear cut as you shouldn't develop these nasty weapons because as you've alluded to um, with uh, Hiroshima there's this this feeling that if we don't do this then the enemy will our adversaries will outdevelop us and then we'll be on the back foot and they'll bomb us and then they'll be the world superpower um, and so there's yeah. this sort of fear uh, where someone's going to invent these. <laughs> someone's going to murder 30 million people. It may as well be us. Then we'll be the winners. Um, and I, I wonder if um, there's a parallel there to be drawn with, uh, like I've been reading a lot about China and uh, the US and the UK recently and how um, some academics, I forget their names now, um, had said that basically the US have worked out that the only way that they can really compete with China is to effectively replicate their kind of social credit score system and become more authoritarian. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of legislation passed over here in the UK now. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's sort of, there's a parallel there to be drawn in terms of like, look, if we don't implement this sort of weird dictatorship, authoritarianism, um, uh, cyber attack um, apparatus, then the enemy will and then they will beat us and they'll rise up and they will be the global superpower um that feels actually quite quite accurate to me i don't know how you feel about that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's complicated and you know these are questions of like philosophy and um, politics um and i frankly don't feel um qualified to really opine on them you know except as a as an ignorant news reader and uh, and you know, thinker about I mean, these things. You've, uh, you've, it's terrifying. It's scary, and I'm, I'm glad that I just described my CV. I'm not qualified. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't stop me. I'm, I'm essentially just glad that I'm not the one making those decisions. <clears throat> you know, I feel very lucky to be uh, operating in this privileged little bubble where I can like think about what feel like fundamental questions about the universe that don't have direct impact on anybody's day to day life, uh, and so I don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, there are other people who do research uh, and practice that where it's much more important, like people who are solving cancer. I think about them sometimes, like I can take a Friday night off and we, you know, I might delay our understanding of the universe by a few hours. If you're a cancer researcher and you take a Friday night off, you might delay our, you know, finding can- the cure to cancer by a few hours. How many more people are going to die? Do they have to do that calculation every time they take an evening off? Um, that's terrifying to me. So. 
I feel one reason I chose this field is exactly because I don't know how to engage with a lot of those questions on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's terrifying. It's sort of a, it's a good thing and a bad thing, isn't it, that we tell ourselves that if you did work in a field like that, you would become somewhat jaded to it. Like we, we tell ourselves like, oh, I would never become jaded to like constant fucking cancer death left right and center um but you would do and because you would do then scientists are able to continue <laughs> to working on it you know <laughs> um, yeah yeah well we're i'm grateful to everybody who's capable of doing that that kind of work yeah yeah me too um listen daniel i could i could chat to you all night man like your your field of expertise is uh endlessly fascinating to me but thank you so much for for coming on tonight um you mentioned earlier that you run a podcast yourself what's the name of it yeah it's called daniel and jorge explain the universe i do it together with my friend and co-host jorge cham uh, he and i wrote uh, several of those books you mentioned together uh, we also have a pbs television show for kids it's called eleanor wonders why but if you're interested in these questions about the universe, you can check out our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, uh, everywhere you find podcasts. Wicked. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, this uh, so this episode will be out on uh, Patreon uh, immediately and then out on the other platforms uh, in a couple of days. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. If you've been tuning, on, tuning in on the live stream, uh, I'll be back next week, no doubt, with a, a midweek emergency podcast about the... Uh, slowly or fastly unraveling political situation here in the United Kingdom uh, <laughs> what a fucking mess and um, yeah we'll catch up with uh, with everyone soon thank you so much again Daniel thank you very much fascinating conversation